You're listening to Cards and Cubes, a show about board games that you didn't grow up playing. On today's show, we will be talking about some games played more than usual, followed by some games that we're looking forward to, and our board game topic today is board game design versus video game design. Today is episode 17, and we are your hosts. I'm Brandon. I'm Christo. I'm Justine. And I'm Matt. Thank you for tuning in. Um, did you guys see this? Pandasaurus Games has taken their very popular game uh, based on Jurassic Park called... What is it called? Dinosaur Island. Dinosaur Island. It had an MSRP of $79.99. They're now lowering it to $59.99. Ah, oh, we got it when it was seventy nine ninety nine, and we haven't played it. So, my question to you guys is: Does this bother you? Does something like this bother you if you've paid high for a game and then they drop the prices? No, this is kind of like how baby boomers only had to pay thirty five dollars for college, and they don't <laughs> want us to get free college. Like, I'm just happy for the people that get it cheaper. That's that's also my opinion too. Like, maybe it'll bring more people into the gaming world they see a jurassic park type game and now it's not 80 dollars. i also wonder um how they're dropping the msrp um are they lowering production quality because the production quality is actually really good in the in our copy of the game we've got little um tired uh what are they called what are those dinosaurs triceratops triceratops meeples the dice are like really plasticky and good I don't know. Are they dropping the quality? No, not at all. Oh, okay. Then that's fine. Uh, what I imagine is that they did so well, but now they can drop the price. Or they just want to clear stock that's not selling, really. That's the cynical me. And they were making so much money that it doesn't matter. They're still making money <laughs> yeah. or something. Yeah, I mean, it was a whole two pages in Game Trade Magazine in the last issue that's actually really interesting is that like unprecedented or something i feel like other games kind of well maybe it doesn't formally happen but in stores they start yeah. at like 42 or something and they slowly drop over time to eventually the clearance clearance section uh especially online right that happens yeah. all the time yeah i never get upset at this unless it's like my own fault like i pay for a game that i don't want to wait for and it comes overseas so then it like hits retail and i'm like i should have waited <laughs> especially um, if it hits retail a few days before you even get your copy yeah <laughs> it actually kind of does bother me so i usually try to buy games that i'm like immediately going to play or they have exclusives or they're going out of print because yeah i don't know i used to rush out and buy games more frequently and then not play them and then, then i see them six months later at like half the price or just even used online not even necessarily in stores but just used and I'm like, well, I could have bought this copy now. There's no difference. So, yeah, it kind of does. If they drop the price of the totally liquid expansion, I think we'll get it. Oh, definitely. We'll I really like Dinosaur and a few Island. other mechanisms, I think. I still haven't yeah. played it specifically that game. I don't know. Justine and I have played it. Yeah. It's pretty good. I'll bring it. I like it. It yeah. can go really long, though, for what it is. Right. Yeah. I just like how they lean into like them copying Jurassic Park. They didn't try to pull any punches. Uh-huh. They went like super 90s, very colorful and... Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, we've played a lot of games because we came from a con. Well, not just now, but, you know, in the previous weekend, we came from a convention. Uh, you could listen to that episode. Um, 
bonus episode number two. It's called SaltCon. So we were at SaltCon and did a panel there. And we only talked about a game each, but we've played a lot of games at the convention. It was a four-day convention. So we are going to talk about more games played than usual, starting with Freesto. All right. Um, I was actually, my list is kind of, of games that I've played is actually kind of games that I probably enjoyed the most at SaltCon. Um, I talked about Liftoff last time, which is actually maybe I was looking through my list, the game that I really enjoyed the most out of all games, um, oddly enough, for whatever reason. Uh, the next probably game is Old West Empresario. So Old West Empresario is a game where you have dice and you draft dice and you can use the dice in multiple ways you can use them to activate a bunch of your buildings in a town that you're building or you can use the dice to acquire new buildings um there's a spatial element to arranging your buildings they're tiles and they want to be next to other tiles but like any good well-designed game um there's some conflict there with scoring so if you put a tile somewhere you're forfeiting maybe something else on the tile so it's kind of a puzzle of how to arrange your board the best and it's sometimes not very clear how you should arrange your both board the base the best um we played a two-player and i actually liked it i kind of wonder with that game if it's going to be still good at more players because i can see some chaos maybe with the dice drafting because some dice are limited the good thing in that game is actually that you can change the dice though that's something i really liked and uh you can change the dice very kind of easily still not trivial but basically you can pay like one coin per dice change and the coins are not super rare so you can pretty much get what you need if you really want it um what i liked about it is it kind of had like uh um those engine games that i like kind of a feel uh you build an engine of buildings really and later on in the game it feels really cool to activate your whole town with just one die, um, kind of like all five buildings activate or whatever in your town and you produce a lot of stuff. There's a decision of whether you should make coins, which is kind of not end game or like victory points basically, which is like population in your town, which is end game. Really cool decisions, like I say, with like spatial considerations and like engine considerations. Uh, pretty cool game actually. I kind of was really impressed with um, my expectations are kind of lower just because it looked like kind of a simpler game, but it is still kind of simple, but I was kind of pleasantly surprised by it. So that's Old West Empresario. Came out about actually two years ago or one year ago. It's been a while since I've wanted to play it, but I finally got to play it. Spiritual or thematic sequel to um, Pioneer's Days? Uh, actually, that's the thing. I think it's also TMG, right? I think yeah. it's TMG. So I was expecting something like Pioneer Days, which I feel like Pioneer Days was kind of not as good as I expected. But not really. I think it's actually more like Glenmore, is if, mm. if I have to compare a game. Because it's kind of the same kind of painful decisions of where do I place my tiles like Glenmore and you activate tiles like Glenmore. So it's very kind of, it doesn't have the time track, it's dice drafting, the way you get things and the way you activate things. But it's, that's the similarity. Um, I didn't really like Pioneer's Day, Day that, Day, Pioneer Days that much. I think it was fine, but mm, I don't know if it was... Amazing. I think you're playing back cool. to back. You're traveling, and then now you you're you've settling. gotten to the town. Yeah, you're settling. Mm. 
I mean, thematically, Pioneer, definitely yes. Yeah. Mechanically, I think kind of no. <laughs> right. Yeah, Pioneer Days was kind of just like disaster preparation the whole game. Yeah. Um. So at the con, I got a chance to play Indulgence, which is a very interesting trick-taking game. Matt and I are kind of picky about our trick-taking games. Our go-to is it has to be better than Spades, which is our favorite trick-taking game. Um, so in Indulgence, the suits are the houses from medieval Italy. So you've got the Borgias, the Medicis, and I can't remember the other two. Sforza. Sforza. Oh, Sforza and the fourth one I've never heard of. Starts with an O. Um, and every round, someone's going to be the ruler, and they have three edicts. Then we're going to go around from the ruler, and you're going to decide whether you want to be a sinner or not. There's only one sinner per game. Um, if there is a sinner, their goal is to do what's on the back of the edict. So it might be um, collect all of the Sforzas, collect... Uh, the last Medici don't collect any sixes. Um, take the first or last trick. Yeah. Take the first or last trick and last trick. The edict is uh, the opposite of that. So don't take any forces. So, and the points are money. There's it's like closed economy. So we're passing money around as points for the game. Um, it was a really interesting trick taking game. I want to play it again. I really enjoyed it. I don't know that it necessarily beats spades, but I thought for what it was, it was really interesting and it introduced interesting decisions. And the hands could play out fast because like if the hand only cares about sixes, once all the sixes are gone, you can be done. I thought that was kind of neat. Yeah, I liked that. I thought it was a little too skewed towards just get dealt high cards and you can be the sinner and go against the edict if you wanted to. But it was still just kind of pretty fun. Like, it's kind of fun to team up on one person. We didn't see all the edicts. Maybe they get weirder. Some of them were kind of pretty straightforward is my only kind of criticism of the game. Right, me too. Like, take the last of this suit. Well, you get an overpowered card for the... At, when you sin, you get to be have the 10. And if you were dealt the 9, it gets kind of easy. Um, the, the good thing is it does have a formal rule. Like, if your hand doesn't matter, you can just stop. You yeah, know, like, yes. if the condition is fulfilled or not and it's never going to be fulfilled right they also do have like advanced mode edict cards so instead of like one thing it's don't take medicis or sforzas don't take sixes or twos so i think i think we played simple mode whereas we could have played advanced and this is a restoration game um do you know what it's replacing like what it's remaking it's actually indulgence I think. oh it's just called it's indulgence. indulgence is just an older game from like the i think 80s maybe mm -hmm. uh, i think it still used to be called indulgence it's just like a straight remake Got i it. haven't looked too deeply into it but i remember the name i think is the same of the old game gotcha okay so we played kitchen rush finally um it reminds me a lot of the video game overcooked you're running around a kitchen real time uh, going to an oven station, to a spice station, shopping for food, running to the pantry, and trying to manage all these orders that are coming in. You have a goal of, let's say, making $12 at the end of the game. And uh, every round, you hustle and hustle, and there's so much tension. And at the end, you maybe have $19, but you have to pay all six of your employees $3. And congratulations, you have a $1 profit. It's one of those type of games. Um, it's really, really hard. 
we started on medium and we didn't come close to winning but it's not stupid hard uh justine and i like to go to bar trivia sometimes and the best questions are ones that are on the tip of your tongue and then when they tell you the answer you're like oh that's right and that's what kitchen rush feels like to me uh when you're going to the pantry for the third time in your four minutes and you realize oh i could have combined this trip or oh i shouldn't have bought this employee or i mismanaged my money there always when the timer ran out i could figure out why we lost and something i could improve upon like the right answer was on my tip of my tongue but there's just so much pressure during the game that i don't know i didn't run very accurately i'm sure if we play and play and play we can finally win but i don't see that happening for like seriously like 50 more plays I agree. We kind of played it as sort of one of those games that's like, well, I'm not ever going to buy it, but I want to experience it once. Like, let's try a real-time game. And then we snap bought it. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I think we put it down, took it back to the library, and bought it on Amazon. And another thing I like about the real-timiness of it, a lot of games are like not so fast or something where you're trying to go really fast. You can just pound on the table and it feels like a sport. Kitchen Rush, you have to be really fast like that, but you have to have finesse. The timers that you're flipping over are really long and tall. You can't knock them up. The pantry is stacked. You can't just like bump the table and knock that off. You have to really quickly like pick up a deck of cards and deal three of them and put it back and move your hand away. And you're moving your hands around so fast without wrecking the board. Um, So you just want to go faster, but you can't wreck everything. So there's more tension there too. Um. Being a real-time game, does the estimated time of play, is it more precise? (laughs) That's true. There's four rounds of four minutes. You're allowed to talk in between rounds, but I mean, (laughs) you can't talk for that long unless you don't want to have fun. So yeah, it's an 18-minute game probably every single time. Nice. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you could sit there and deliberate for half an hour and make an exact plan, but don't. (laughs) And there's top decking too, so you can't even plan that deeply. That was Kitchen Rush. Steffenfeld is a man who designs many games. And many of these games I quite enjoy a lot. Um, I have a small collection of his games, and I'm always looking forward to the next one. Merlin is a game that released a couple years ago, and we hadn't seen it in the States for a while. And we played it at the con, and boy, was I disappointed. Merlin is a roll and move game. That's right. It's roll and move and a bunch of like point salad and some set collection things and um, various ways of, uh, of strategy, which I have no complaints about all the game that surrounds that the roll and move. I do now. I think this is him trying to um, design a game that maybe is like, Oh, look, you can design a good roll and move game, but this makes me think that you can't. (laughs) there is ways to mitigate the dice but to me it's kind of the worst ways you can mitigate it i liked in uh castles of burgundy where you could spend workers and make the pip of the dice go up or down in this case you spend an apple and you get to flip the die so still not that much mitigation you're on a round table and you have a pawn that you're moving clockwise There's also Merlin, which all the players can control, and he could go counterclockwise or clockwise, but you only have one die for that particular character. You have three other dies that you roll in the beginning of the round that you can use in whichever order you want to move your own pawn around. So there's a lot of... So you get these flags that is like kind of the mitigation. Um, 
one could make you turn the die, flip the die, as I said. One could make you go counterclockwise and break the rules. Um, there's a bunch of different flags that could do different things when you discard them. You could also use those flags for various points, and um, you're trying to like complete objectives on cards that are in your hand. <clears throat> but the thing is, is there's a lot of thought process for me to see if I can get my guy to the place that I want him to be. I could, okay, so I need to look. I could move five times. That doesn't do it. I could move three. That doesn't do it. I could move one. That doesn't do it. I could flip dice. Look at all my flips. That doesn't do it. I could go counterclockwise. That doesn't do it. Oh, there's one flag that make me go across the board in a straight line and then move from there. And now I have to reevaluate all those moves. So it like bogs down this like I'm thinking about all this and then at the end I'm just like eh, I can't do it oh that's terrible I hate when they make you go down dark alleys like that yeah yeah so you go down these different paths of trying to figure it out and then you just can't do it again all the other things surrounding the game I thought was pretty cool I wish that this was more of like a rondelle or maybe like worker placement um, but the roll and move didn't work for me our friend Trevor, who played it with us, uh, had a great description of it. He said that he feels like the game had a, a chokehold on him with both hands and it just kept getting tighter. <laughs> actually, I played it with Brandon. I think that is actually exactly the feeling that Feld wanted you to experience is um, kind of a very restricted game. Uh, his games are generally very restricted. And I think he deliberately did not want you to be able to change the dice just so you have to like kind of suffer through those decisions of like if i go here i do this and i can't do that so yeah it's kind of like not i think it's not designed meant to be open it's meant to be kind of more closed so right um yeah uh for me the game was pretty random yeah they're um not necessarily even the movement i think the movement the theory there is like all the actions are good i don't know if that's also true because some actions are better towards the end of the game like the point actions where you they there's actions which reward you for elements on the board basically like flags or control markers or whatever so if you take that action at the beginning of the game you're getting one point if you're getting the action towards the end of the game, you're getting seven points. So you kind of don't want those actions at the beginning of the game. And sometimes I think the dice kind of force you into it. But yeah, um, the bigger thing for me was actually there's these objective cards that you can fulfill just by like you have random objectives in your hand um, and there's a market for them. But the market was kind of ended up being kind of really junky for us where no one wanted the three objectives that were out. So what ended up happening is you fulfill an objective and you can draw and everyone started like top decking at some point in the game. And you can just top deck something that works for you just completely blindly that you already even have maybe fulfilled. Um, or you can top deck something that's completely useless and impossible. So the points on those objectives are not huge, but just there's a lot of elements like that in the game at the end of the round you get dealt these like random traders or whatever and they can just happen to match your shields that you have which protect against the traders or not um, and if they don't you have to waste time to protect against that because that's like point loss there's a lot of those things in the game as, as, as you think about it there's a lot of just random things happening to you and very kind of restricted ways that you can deal with it in the Feldian way, because that's his way is like, I think like kind of restrict your game a lot, but this one was also kind of random, which is not the great combo, I think. So it sounds like Steffenfeld designed a punishing Steffenfeld game without understanding how Steffenfeld games work. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, so it sounds like it's Oracle of Delphi, but take out the uh, fun. Yes, factor. actually, that's exactly yeah. my feeling of it. That was I was actually talking to Brandon about it. I was like, I'd rather play Oracle of Delphi because at least it's fun. This is like Oracle of Delphi, but not so much fun. And <laughs> so it like, took you guys forever to set it up too. So you have that's to yes, what forever. I was going to say. It was a really long setup. And it was kind of a long teach. And then it was a lot of thought process for things that you might just not have control over at the end. So, like, I, I don't mind a lot of random games. I mean, we've talked about it in previous shows before, but they have to be, like, kind of short and simple and fun. And this is none of those things. It's not short. It's not simple. It's not fun. Yeah. So, yeah. So, that was a bummer. Uh, I will not be playing Merlin again. Yeah, I think the game has its charm, but kind of too random for me also. Um, I'd rather play Oracle Delphi anytime, which I kind of enjoy actually a lot. Um, a game which I played at SaltCon again um, is Fertility. That actually kind of surprised me as a game. I saw some kind of a tile laying game, and actually initially it looked really complicated because there's this art on the tiles. So like I kind of didn't know anything about the game really going in. Um, I thought it was going to be this kind of complicated game because of the art. It turned out to be kind of very simple, kind of in a way. Uh, simple, but I'd say clever. Um, the way that the game works is, what is the game, by the way? The game is your, I think you're growing the gardens of Egypt or something, um, or planting stuff in Egypt and like making quarries and just like making a economy or whatever uh, by by placing tiles kind of domino style very like king domino style in a way you match one side of the tiles and it produces for each match um, then you can feed these district shops uh, shops and districts which is basically kind of conversion engines from the resources you generated to points in your city so um, what was the clever thing about it? I think actually the tile placement thing in combination with the fulfillment was kind of clever because the game is makes you be efficient with resources. The resources don't stay between rounds that you get from matches. So you have to spend that one round and that introduces some interesting decisions of like, kind of like, oh, I'm going for this. And then you have to commit to some kind of a shop, which is usually not just one resource, like a series of resources in a particular strategy. So it makes you kind of commit to those things and then you have to kind of like work on them throughout the game. Um, so what ends up happening is people choose different strategies to go for. There's several that you can do and kind of work on that um, throughout the game. And the scores get kind of exponential for the strategy that you choose generally. Um, definitely on the light side, this is not a heavy game, um, but Kind of, I had a lot of fun with it, actually. That's what kind of surprised me, is I thought it was going to be just, uh, just another tallying game and, like, play styles like King Domino or something in score. Um, what kind of, I think, made it slightly different was that resource disappearance thing where you have to be efficient. Um, yep, that's, that's fertility. Other people played it as well, so it sounds like they have something to say. I really liked Fertility. It was like a nice, relaxing, kind of domino-type game. Um, there were some times where you had to decide like who you were going to set up based on what uh, tiles were coming out. But I just thought it was kind of fun and relaxing. That's what I wanted to talk about was the setting up. I would say, in general, 
your good moves set up the person after you and the board state gets better and better and better, which is cool with a community board state type game like this. I um, didn't play it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's looking at Brandon, but no. Um, so my next game I wanted to talk about, um, I put on the Facebook page because it was just so weird. It's called Wombat Rescue. <laughs> now I think Matt and I played it with you didn't play it, did you? Hear no, I watched you one watched round and I was it. like, what is going on? Yeah, that was <laughs> just that was just dis- We disturbed. were playing it and that was basically what our thought process was. So um for those of you that don't know, apparently wombats poop in cubes and they turned that into a game mechanic. Do they really poop in cubes? Yeah. Google like it. bunnies poop in circles. Yeah. And wombats poop in cubes. And apparently the reasoning is is that they are really dependent on their poop to like know their way home and know their way around things. Mm. So they don't want it to roll away. So you bank it into a cube, I guess. Look at us just wasting our... <laughs> yeah, we flesh. flush it down. Yeah. <laughs> Life finds a way, right? Um, so in this game, you play a mama wombat and you're on one side of the board and then you've got your baby wombats and you're on they're on the other side of the board and it's basically a race game to collect all of your baby wombats and get them back to your home tile. Uh, you have dingoes that are running around and trying to kill you. Um, and so the main mechanic of the game is if you are within a certain distance of one of your cubes, which is one of your poops, you can move far but in a straight line. Um, so you're trying to put cubes down at certain distances so that you can just speed right past those dingoes and get to the babies as fast as possible. How do you get more poop cubes down is you have to eat food (laughs) and then it has to digest and you have very little control. Like it's a progression. You know how many steps it's going to be through the digestive tract, but when it's time to go, it's time to go. (laughs) It's the <laughs> it is the weirdest game I have ever played. And your tableau is the like an X-ray of this wombat. Yeah, you yeah. can see it on our Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. Your player board is literally a wombat, and it has a space in the mouth for food, and then it goes in the esophagus, and then the stomach. And it's like oh. sectioned, and it's very anatomically accurate. Oh, it's um, a weird, weird game. Can wombats really only go straight in a straight lines? They can't turn. <laughs> The, ru- <laughs> the rules explain it as they're stubborn. And I, they don't want to turn. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Oh, and you can like push each other's wombats around. How do you turn like in the game? Um, Next turn. So like you would stop oh. and then turn and then move again. Okay. Um, the I thought a really cool touch though was that um, you, once you're out of your smell area, the wombat's too timid to move very far. So you can only move one square. And you have to move either into a square with one of your babies, into a square with food, or you top deck a card and it gives you two choices of where to move. And like it's different um, regions. Because if you don't have something to smell, you're wandering aimlessly, right? Yeah. You need something to aim for. Tell me about the wind condition. You have to get all three. (laughs) You have to get all three babies back to your home zone before everybody else does. And the one thing I hated, though, like after all of that, I think the dingoes were a nice touch, but they were also really frustrating because the first like four rounds, we all just got eaten by dingoes. And other people are controlling them in the game. Yeah. Like you're taking turns controlling them. Did you guys like it? Uh, I guess I did. <laughs> <laughs> 
I want to play it again and I want to play it all the way through, but I don't want to buy it. I, yeah, exactly. I okay. think next SaltCon, it's going to be on my, the top of my list did, of like, did I you guys, play this again. Did you guys grab it off the shelf because of the theme? Uh, Yes. Yeah, you're just like morbidly what curious. Game about? Yeah, it was our friend, not either of us. But okay. He just started laughing and grabbed it and <laughs> I guess we're playing this. And we went along with it and it was funny. <laughs> Uh, the hard part was we were playing it in the quiet games room and just try to be quiet while you're playing that yeah. game. Yeah, I remember Hristo explaining to me uh, him walking into the game and hearing all you guys talking about, well, uh, my wombat is pooping. <laughs> oh, no, I can't leave my smell zone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, I played a Reiner Knizzi game. I think it's his newest game still called Aristocracy. Um, on your turn, there's a bunch of different regions and then just a bunch of face down tiles within each region and you flip over three of them. Uh, it doesn't matter which three. And then you get to do something with all of any given one type. So are you with me? So as the game goes on, there's more and more <clears throat> just different kind of stuff flipped over and then there's more and more castles, churches, kings, queens. And so it's kind of like La Havre in that you weren't going for something, but all of a sudden seven of something comes available to you, and so you score that. So that's interesting decision number one. Uh, interesting decision number two is there's all kinds of route building and area majorities and area super majorities within each region. And then there's also the pace of the game. If you're ahead, you're kind of trying to end it. So there's a lot going on. I think Kenizia is great at this. Uh, he needed he's you know a doctor in math or whatever and it's funny how simple all of the things he ends up coming up with are really when you come down to them but i guess it's like he needed to get really good at something to be able to distill it down and really understand how different simple things can interact i think it's kind of cool like i've heard picasso could just you know paint an exact replica of like a pair on a table like everybody else you know, he had to be that good at painting to make his just abstract stuff make sense. And that's what I think about with Kinesia games. That being said, this is a Kinesia game. And if you already have Blue Lagoon, Taj Mahal, Tigris, and Euphrates, and you're not a completist, you absolutely don't need to get this. This feels just in line with those. If I had to rank his games from 1 to 10, 10 could be 1 and 1 could be 10. I know it. So it feels exactly like those games, but it was fun. And I'll, ever, I'll get it if it's ever on sale used or something. That's kind of weird. I thought it was kind of okay. Um, there are a lot of decisions going on, but I think sometimes just because of what you reveal and the mechanic of like the luck of the reveal. Um, yeah, all of his games start of, from like a source of like a random input and then it gets really chessy from there, you yeah. know? Mm. I don't know. Um, it was okay. I'd describe it as an okay game for me, but not. I actually, I like probably his other games better than that one for some reason. The theme is also kind of hilariously like the nobility left and you're just taking over or something. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. We don't like, know where they went, yeah, but we let's don't take know all their stuff. Went. Let's take all their stuff. Like, what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's a okay game. I enjoyed it. It's not that I disliked it or anything. I just didn't. I wasn't super impressed by it for some reason. I walked away from it after the rules teach. Do you remember that? No. Yeah. The rules got taught and then I walked away. But the store got busy, so oh, I was right. tending to the store. I'm okay sitting this one out, though. But that's how I felt. Um, I'm ready for Kinesia to design another like bigger game. Like he's 
put, been putting out a lot of like smaller, simple, yeah. like kind of fun games, but like I'm ready for a bigger. Actually, game. that's maybe what I felt like is it was kind of like too small in a way. So I wanted something like more. Is it too 1994 too? He could have designed this in 94, I think. Actually, That's what it yeah. looked like. Actually, kind of, no, for me, I think I was fine with the gameplay. It was just kind of a smaller game. And yeah. Uh, Hats is a card game, just like Numbers Colors kind of card game. I actually, card games that I like really like is those type of games. Uh, this one's kind of weird. You have a hand of cards, and then there's like a cards on this board that are numbered one through six and the numbers are labeled one through six and there's like seven different colors um you're playing a card out and switching it with a card on the board uh the rules for that is you it has to either be the same color or it has to be higher than the the card you're switching out for the card that you're getting back it goes in front of you and it's a set collection type thing. And at the end of the game, wherever the cards lay on the board, the number, the colored cards are going to be that much points. So if there's a brown card in the six slot, every brown card is going to be six points. You play every card in your hand, but one, and that, that one card is your favorite hat. These are like cards of hats. And that is going to be your favorite hat is going to be your cards in front of you of that color the sum of all those numbers minus the card that you're you're holding in your hand there's a there's a two and three player variant where you just like play all against each other but i think the actual game is the four player game where you're playing in teams kind of kitty corner from across each other and you could trade cards with little to no information um and there's a cookie that goes around so if you have the most uh, sets, then you get that cookie. Uh, I do like the game. I feel like the strategy is not very straightforward in the beginning, especially if like how to communicate with your opponent when you can't communicate anything with them. It says in the rule book, like it says you could talk freely about what you want, except you can't talk about the number, the type of card or the color. So it's like, what else is there to talk about? We found ways around it by saying like, I want a card that I have in my tableau. And to Risto's point, he was mm. like, I think you should play with no communication. I think that that is true. I think, I think the way to do it is to give your opponent, your, your um, partner. I was partner. gonna say, you said opponent, you're talking to your partner. You're talking to your you're partner. You're not yeah, talking yeah. to your opponent. They're not talking <laughs> to your opponents at all, yeah. no. Your partner. Uh, you should give them. You sh you should have enough information that's in front of them to give them cards that are going to help them, or give them a card and kind of be baiting them to like change the market for me because this makes sense. Uh, anyway, it's like really fast, simple game. Uh, I should mention that like it's all really nice looking. Like the cards are linen finish, and the cookie is like looks edible. And there's a score sheet that's a dry erase board that's like a napkin that the cookie goes on before anybody gets it. The box is like a magnet book box, except the marker that came with my game was completely dry right out of the box. So that's kind of a bummer. But this is a game that I want to like try more. I think I don't like the two, three player game. I think I like the team game better. It feels like you have a little bit more control if you get the communication right, which is not verbal in my opinion, it's just like sight and intuition of, of what you should be doing. Yeah, sorry. 
I agree. I like the team game a lot more than like the two or three player game. I one of my big pet peeves with uh, any card game like that is if there's hidden cards, like there's a deck of cards off to the side that you don't know. Um, and in a two player game, that's how it is. Or in a three player game as well, there's mm-hmm. cards you don't know if they're out or not. Um, I will say like the strategy for the team game, I'm lost. I have like poor Haristo had to be my partner, I think twice. And both times he's like, hey, let's trade it. I'm like, okay. And I Here's hand a him card. a card and he's like, I didn't want that card. <laughs> Yeah, I think with more plays, it gets it gets more and more obvious of what you should trade. Uh, yeah, in the two and three player game, instead of trading, you're just top decking. You're discarding a card and top decking, and I don't like that so much. It's actually a weird game because I really don't understand it still, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's um, like I don't know what I'm doing really in that game. Uh, in some card games, you just know what you're doing. It just kind of doesn't work out, and that's why I'm actually not sure what I know what I'm even doing yet. Uh, there's it, that makes it, I think, um, cool um, because games like that doesn't don't, don't really come through very much. I have some kind of a weird abstract feeling of chaos when I play that game, but I need to play it more to really see if it's true or not. Um, I don't know. Uh, the way the game works is basically your cards have to go through the middle in a weird way. So like they have to go through your opponents and the, your opponents have to like not interact with them so you can actually get them. So they kind of have to like awkwardly be placed in the middle for a round and survive for you to actually get the card that you're holding in your hand, which is very unintuitive and just weird. Yeah, the thought process for me was much like peep mots where you have these cards in your hand that you desperately want in front of you, but the conundrum there is like, how do I get these cards from my hand to the table? I have to go, I have to put them into the community first, hope that they're not taken and hope that I could take them later. So I do like that aspect of the game. Uh, you're right. There's not a lot of simple card games like this that aren't just like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like it. I want to play it a lot more. I think right now, like Peep Mots and Parade is a game that I would suggest more than this, but that might change with a lot more plays. I mean, Linko for me felt that way too. At first, I was like, I don't know how to win. I don't know what to do. And after several plays, I think we've played that game. I've played that game like 40 times now. Um, it's just like, you know exactly what to do and it's like so much fun now that everybody knows what to do and it's like that much harder to accomplish what you want to accomplish so i'm hoping that uh hats has more play to it like linko and and parade but yeah um if you're concerned about the two or three player game i uh, don't have so much so much of a problem with it because there is a deck out but one of the actions turns into instead of trading with your partner you can pick up from the deck so that deck eventually makes it into the game it is in a more chaotic way maybe than a four-player game but eventually all the cards are very likely to be in the game so that's for me not really a concern that much it's just like part of the weirdness of the game yeah the problem i had with it is i was like searching for a card every turn and just like picking up and not getting it picking up not getting it yeah and that's, uh, that's yeah. just a thing that happens yeah, yeah. but i mean it it's can irre- happen with trading too it, it's irreversible like trading with your partner you can actually get back the card yeah. you discarded trading with the dummy deck you cannot get the card you discarded you pick up a card and you discard a card and it's gone forever so that's definitely a difference yes 
did you want to say anything to Stan about it? Uh, I was going to say like? the difference might be when Harista was trading with me, he might as well have been drawing off of a deck because I was like, <laughs> I don't know, I'll hand you this card. I make use of it. No. Uh, what ended up happening was I very kind of sad, actually, because I wanted a particular color and we both ended up getting it. And it was kind of like, a, like okay, well, that didn't work out. But it's okay. Uh, it was just like learning games. Um Anyone else want to say anything about hats? All right, the game that I played um, at SaltCon again right, was Inuit. Uh, everyone has been kind of looking forward to it, at least Brandon I know has, mm -hmm. and uh, he didn't get to play it, unfortunately. But it's a game where you are a tribe in the like um, First Nations, I think is what they call them in like uh, in the Inuit in, in Canada uh, or places i don't know if they're only in canada i think there's actually communities other places as well actually there's something in the rule book about history and stuff and um just thematic ties but basically you are a tribe and you do certain actions you have tribe members and they come out in the middle of the table and you can recruit anyone can recruit them but the fascinating thing is actually their negative points if someone else recruits them they're loyal to your tribe so like your cards come out and someone else gets them they're minus points to the minus two points to them however they do actions for them and the game is very simple seems very simple kind of build up of actions so when you take cards you can take them as action improvements really then kind of make to make your actions more powerful or you can take them as kind of points really um and your tableau is basically very kind of simple is like the bottom of your tableau is there's a line in the middle and the bottom of your tableau is the size of your tribe which is like the power of your actions really the actions you can do and how powerful they are the top part is basically points and set collection stuff um the game can get really snowball-y and like really weird because you can really power up an action like massively and it does have like a setup element kind of set up the next person kind of element because it has the actually very similar to aristocracy you can reveal things and they might not necessarily benefit you because they might not work with the action that you've chosen to power up but you can't like unreveal them so then the next person might actually make use of those styles because that's what they're going for and that's what action they have built up um i really liked the game though overall i think it was really cool uh, like i said it does get snowball -y. it does have some luck elements but um it ended up being kind of close ish uh i enjoyed the process of playing it though so i'm not really bothered about imbalances or like this game is broken or something it kind of is broken by design in a weird way but the process of playing the game feels kind of really fun just the things that happen in the game the reveals and the mechanics of like just there's i'm not going to go into it but you can do different actions like set collection you can do actions that like interact with other people like um kind of hate draft them there's an action where you can like murder people to get their weapons or whatever like warfare um and there's like objectives and game objectives or ongoing powers uh pretty cool game though i really enjoyed it actually um yeah that's uh inuit the snow folk so at SaltCon, i also got a chance to play on mars which is a game i think we have all been looking forward to um it's the newest uh, Vital Lacerda game. I'm going to talk about it pretty briefly uh, because there's a lot to talk about. Um, 
the biggest thing about this game, I I love it. I think the timing element is neat. The uh, deciding whether you're going to be on the colony or in orbit every, uh, every time you get that decision. At the beginning of the game, it's not a big deal. Whatever, you bounce back and forth and it's fine. By the end of the game, when you're going to have to wait six rounds if you decide to stay in one place, it's agonizing deciding what to do. Like everything else just kind of flows from that. The worker placement is kind of whatever. The mini game on the um, on the surface of Mars is kind of, you know, I mean, it's fun. But just that like agonizing decision of am I going to stay on Mars for six more rounds or am I going to go into orbit and do crappy actions but I have to do it for three rounds is really neat. It the That decision, I think, makes the game. Yeah, I mean, I've only played it once, so it's hard for me to get too deep into it, but I did really enjoy it. What I like about Lacerda games is, like, he it's a worker placement game, but it's not, like, blocking spaces. It's just making things harder to go to, like, more expensive. Like, if you want to go to a place where two other opponents are, you have to spend people or... Uh, diamonds and that could be rough to do so yeah i i uh i'm looking forward to talking about it more because i'm gonna play it a lot more exactly yeah i've played it twice and i don't feel any differently than after i've played it once as far as have i played the whole game do i understand the game <laughs> no not yet not even close yeah but i mean that's lacerda games in general you can't just play those games once and understand the whole game oh, you for have sure. to play them a bunch yeah what i what i find interesting about lacerda games Typically, you could see by the end score who had played it more than once and who was new. You could see like the person who was playing it for the first time is last on the on the score track. The person who's played it the most is the furthest on the score track. Except for my wife, when we played Lisboa, she beat Risto and I by kind of a lot, and it was like her first game and our like third game. But she's a software engineer, so what are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I played Sentient which is a simple little game that I thought was a lot of fun. There is a community of five cards in the middle, and this game is all about what's going on in between cards. So you also have your own personal tableau uh, where you're rolling dice before the round and then trying to meet certain in conditions in between all of the cards that you draft. I hope that made sense. But this game is all about placing guys and extra power-ups tokens in between cards in the middle to win them at auction and uh, onto your own tableau to kind of add or subtract to your dice to meet the conditions that the cards are making you to do. So it's kind of like two-ply in that way. Um, the third way you score is there are these chevrons above all the cards, and at the end of the round, whoever has put the most guys into a given slot is going to win the chevrons, which are multiplicative scoring. You multiply all the blue cards you got by all the blue chevrons you got, and it can be a big deal at the end of the game. So there's a ton of tension in the game because if there's a lot of blue cards and a lot of blue chevrons, guess what? If you're not playing with dummies, everybody's going to be going for the same cards and kind of trying to stall, and it's a cold war, before they just bomb a slot with all their guys in all their circles. I was going to say, um, you explained it really abstractly, but I think an example of a condition is like the left die and the right die have to sum to seven 
uh, or like the left die has to be lower than the right die or, or something. Or they all have to be even or, or they, they all have, have to be, be odd, odd. odd. Or you just get 12 so points minus your die. They're kind of like mathematical and pretty straightforward, but what makes the game kind of interesting is the cards kind of sit next to each other and they might modify the same die, which might, might mess with one card. Mm -hmm. So the, the order in which you put cards on your tableau is very important as well. You can love the condition, but hate something else about the card or vice versa. Uh, definitely different paths to victory. I went 12 for 12. I hit every single one of my cards. I think other people didn't hit all of their cards, but had better chevrons and I ended up taking third. I thought I was smoking it, but other people impressed me with just their pure multiplicative scoring. I'd say I don't like the top deckiness of it, but I really like the multipliers. So they like cancel out and it's just a really fun puzzle making your dice add up to these different conditions that you're drafting. Yeah, I was going to say if there's one thing that's unfortunate about the game is there is an action that someone can take to wipe the whole board. So we were talking about it and the game is like you're kind of an, an, in an unfortunate situation if you're thinking too much about the game and too much planning because it comes to your turn and the person right before you can wipe the whole board and the stuff that you've been thinking about is completely void. So now you have to start over, just completely rethink everything it's a game that you kind of have to commit to not overthinking, I feel like, because, yeah, if that happens, you could spend the next however many minutes, 10, 15 minutes, figuring out exactly which card you want. But if you do that, like, you're going to ruin the experience for everybody else. So, like, if you're going to play Sentient, don't overthink things. Like, kind of just have a good time. Put cards by dice, do the math, and see what happens yeah well it's, it's, you have to figure out at least the next card you're getting uh i don't really plan more than one card in that game i think that's a complete waste of time but you do have to figure out like the next card you're getting in combination with those uh area majority type things that were going on in the middle with the, for the multiplication scoring pretty cool game though i i like that game um like matt says it's a little bit top decky and lucky but uh, kind of really interesting concept kind of nothing really else does that really i'd say actually something like fuse does it but in a very different way fuse is all about real-time snap decisions this is all about slow calculated decisions and area majority multiplication decisions might be a little bit like spirium but that was sentient all right, so It's a Wonderful World was a game that I thought was had more game to it. Like the the box, you know, the box size and everything about it. I always thought when when I heard about this game and looked at this game that it was like some like uh like medium weight style euro game. Uh but in fact, it's I would look at it more as a filler game and uh with that mindset, I really enjoyed it. It's a card drafting engine building set collection game. So you're just like drafting cards like um, Seven Wonders style, you know, pick one, pass, pick one, pass, pick one, pass. Um, and then you decide which ones are you're going to construct or which ones you discard. If you discard them, you get like this uh, recycling bonus, which is just like all cubes. There's like different colored cubes. And, and then what I liked about it a lot is you have this production and you're going to go through each resource individually and you're going to see who has the most production. Now, everybody still gets that production, but whoever has the biggest production gets a bonus out of it. Um, the cards are like different colors as well. So there's going to be scoring, like there's going to be just scores that are just right on the cards that will be like 10 points, but it's really hard to construct. You have to put a lot of different resources on it. Or there's going to be cards that are like uh, two times how many 
blue cards you have or something like that. There's also cards that have really good production and no points on them. So it's really easy to not score high or at all if you're just thinking about production, which I had a lot of problems with because I want to make a big production and maybe I've been doing that at the end of the game. Christo's next to me and he's taking all the scorecards. So now <laughs> I'm just seeing production cards. So there's that, but it's so quick. It's been like 20, 30 minutes most of the times that we've played it. And it's, it, I like, I really like the interaction to it. It feels like a lot more interaction rather than just drafting. You're trying to create uh, bigger productions and everybody else to get these bonuses. And I find that like really fun. I don't know like at the end of the round, just holding up my fingers and seeing, did I beat you? No, you know, I really enjoyed that. Uh, it's pretty looking. There's not a lot to it. It didn't have to be in that big box. I think Christo was talking about it where he's like, what, it could have just been like a deck of cards and like you didn't have to have any of these like extra components. But I think that's true. Uh, but regardless, like I actually really liked it. Probably one of my favorite games at SaltCon that I played, even though I bought it before SaltCon, but I did play it at SaltCon. Uh, yeah, uh, you guys all played it too. Um, yes, you're saying that it's a filler game, and I agree, and it's a great filler. Other people can't wrap their head around it that it's a filler because it comes in the normal King Domino size yeah. square box, and they're kind of not liking it. Uh, I'm going to channel Justine for a second and say, well, you shouldn't think for three minutes on your turn. <laughs> Treat yeah. it like it's a treat it like it's a filler game and it's going to be fun turn it into like an hour and a half long game and it's gonna way overstay it's well yeah it's too simple it's too simple i think for that kind of play yeah. uh towards the end of the game you can think for longer when you have a large production to not waste time but generally yes it's like on the light side of things um it's very kind of similar to century spice road meets terraforming mars but in 45 minutes that's how i would kind of describe the game and unfortunately i would say like terraforming mars it's prone to do to the possible problem of i didn't get good cards um unfortunately but it's short enough that it doesn't bother me that much. I, I was thinking, like, could I have staged the deck or made, like, the scoring cards a different draft or something, or I don't know, because the scoring cards are intermixed with production cards, really, and sometimes you don't want scoring cards early, you don't want production cards late, so that's kind of an issue with that game as well. But generally, it seems to work out. If a scoring card works that well for you, you should probably get it early and save it even though it's inefficient mm -hmm. um it's kind of a light enough game that that doesn't bother me that much in that game as much as it does in the longer game like terraforming mars but also being able to discard cards to get resources i think is really good honestly yeah, yeah. like whereas terraforming mars you don't have that you buy cards and then you yes. have to live with them yeah, it does have the actually race for the galaxy like mechanic of I have seven cards and I can build one or two. Which ones is it gonna be? So you pay for cards with cards effectively in a weird way. Yeah. Yeah, so that was It's a Wonderful World and that was our games played. So up next is our games looking forward to. Uh, this week, I just have one game that I'm looking forward to, more of a curiosity. It's from Prospero Hall. Uh, the same, it's a collective of designers that call themselves this. They did what I call target games. So, Horrified, Villainous, Jaws, Bob Ross, The Art of Chill, Choose Your Own Adventure game, The Funko Universe, 
and Shifty-Eyed Spies, which made me feel like I was high on drugs when I played it. Uh, but this one is The Shining. Um, it looks like based more on the movie than the book. I'm just basing that on the cover. The cover's like a, a little boy playing with his car on the famous carpet that's in the movie. I don't know if, I haven't read the book, so I don't know if it mentions like the carpet design. I doubt it in the book. Um, but I've, I think these games are sort of like hit or miss for me, but I think that they are kind of the leading um, game designers that, like can take an AP and actually make a decent game out of it. Where most of the time, if I see an AP, I go, Oh, I probably don't want to get that, but they've been doing decently with this. So I am looking forward to the shining sort of. It's funny. You're saying AP instead of IP. Oh, IP. Sorry. AP yeah. IP bad all yeah. the time. Yeah. It's yeah. Sorry. My bad. Yeah. IP international, uh, international intellectual property. Is that the same uh, group of designers, I guess? I didn't even realize it's a group of designers that designed the Top Gun that we were looking at the other day. Yes. Um, that's actually kind of funny. Um, I saw Top Gun and I was just I just picked it up because I was like, oh, wow, what a wonderful opportunity to revitalize the franchise, of which is like 25 years old now. Um, and the new Top Gun is coming out, so I think that's why. But the game is pretty funny. There's uh, actually... I picked it up and I thought it was going to be a war game because, you know, that's what you think of with Top Gun, like airplanes and like aircraft carriers. Half the game is a volleyball I was, court. I was going to guess yeah. that. Dang it. I wish yeah. I would have guessed that before you said it. I was yeah. going to be like, was it shirtless it, volleyball? No, it's amazing. Yeah. I was like, holy crap, this is hilarious. Like on the back of the box, you see like half the game, exactly half the game is a volleyball court and half the game is airplanes and like aircraft It's not even like stuff. fighting. It's like the, uh, the simulation in the movie, you know, when it's like uh, Maverick and Goose versus what, Slider and Iceman, and they're just like fighting each other. Oh, so like, like the volleyball game is going to give you like confidence if you win, like do good <laughs> in the volleyball game to like go against them. Uh, I did look at like an overview of it and the volleyball game looks really dumb. You like put a volleyball on a card and you're trying to like get like certain cards from them that they don't want you to find. So you're just like trying to find cards on their side of the volleyball court. Um, and able to like get things for the next game That's i would definitely so play it because it's kind of hilarious you play volleyball then you go and fly like what better way to feel like maverick yeah it just <laughs> seems so funny i did not expect yeah. the volleyball game to be part of the game and it's like half the game it's a significant part of the game it looks like uh speaking of which by the way i do have a volleyball game which is really weird um all their kickstarter which delivered i haven't brought it yet but maybe that's something i'm looking forward to playing i can't even remember the name it's like got to do with volleyball but i looked at a different game this week um called um storm watchers steam watchers sorry steam watchers i can't even remember the name i just looked at it yesterday um i kind of slightly game about saunas being in saunas uh no actually the game is about watching steam i'm just kidding uh, i mean kind of the theme is a post-apocalyptic theme so everything is ice so that's why you're watching steam because steam kind of comes out as like geysers i guess or something and you're trying to make geothermal energy and just kind of survive around the steam geysers that come out of the ground for whatever reason um i kind of slightly agonized over that game because it looked really cool it looked really interesting 
Uh, however, it was very expensive. I think uh, I saw it on Kickstarter, and the Kickstarter was like 185 or something, 195 for like the all-in pledge, which I usually want to do with those kind of games. And it looked like a battle for Rokugan kind of a type game where... It's kind of very straightforward. There's these steam geysers that pop out and you have production buildings. It's an area control. You have units, you have elite units or whatever. You can spend these tokens to like push harder, but they kind of have a negative effect on you later. Like feed your people with like algae or something is what the theme is. It's kind of weird. Um, but the core mechanic is basically blind planning. You plan these tokens, very much like Battle for Rokugan. Also, you have a bluff token like Battle for Rokugan, and the tokens are like move, defend, or do nothing, I think, or build or something. Uh, so it looked kind of a very simple, kind of simpler gameplay. Maybe there's depth there that I didn't really see through the gameplay videos, but I just kind of couldn't bring myself to back it, but it, I was just thinking in my head, like I would definitely try it if someone brought it around or if I saw it at SaltCon. So that's Steam Watchers. Um, I think the publisher's Mythic Games, which they've done a lot of actually cool games. Oh, the other thing about it about it was a uh, first time designer. So that's why I wasn't sure, like, mm, is this going to be actually good or not? Uh, full of kind of miniatures, not super large miniatures, but a lot of them. There's six factions, and they each have unique sculpts and all that stuff. Um, looked like kind of a simpler game, though, so I'm not sure how I feel, felt about it, but I would definitely play it if someone brought it around. Um, Matt and I are looking at doing our very first Kickstarter, uh, backing our first, sorry, should be more specific, uh, Kiesling, and is it Kiesling and Kramer? Yeah, I think so. I think it's, it's both, both yeah. of them. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so they are coming out with a new game called Paris, which first of all, you've got me on the name. Um, it is set in Paris in the 18th century. It's a tile laying game um, where you're basically like visiting Paris and you want to see all the sites. It looks incredible, from like the box art to the production of the board to everything about it. There's a little Arc de Triomphe piece. I'm not sure what that's for, but it looks absolutely beautiful. Um, Kiesling and Kramer are two of the designers that I kind of trust anything they do. If they do something, I'm probably going to give it a try and I'm probably going to like it. Yeah, why is this my first Kickstarter? The Arc de Triomphe piece and the name on the box. Kiesling Kramer looks good. I'm in. That's all I know about it. That's all I care to know about it. I'll play it when it comes in. 100% sure it's going to be good. Yeah, the, the BGG page for it says, a typical medium weight Euro game from Kiesling and Kramer. And I'm like, yeah, I'm in. I would definitely play that. Um, so I've gone back and forth on mine. I was looking forward to it, then I was disappointed by some things, and I'm back to looking forward to it. Um, it's Crystal Palace. I read the rules at SaltCon, and um, we didn't get it to the table because I was going to want to house rule things already, and I didn't think people would buy into an iffy rules teach where maybe I didn't get all the rules, and then plus I'm house ruling things. But I want to sit down and try and take the take that out of Crystal Palace. Mm. What is it besides the take that that I think looks really bad in it? Uh, it's dice placement, like in Artemis Project, like in Coimbra but you don't roll your dice. You get to set them at whatever you want. The catch is 
you have to pay a salary of six to your sixes and one to your ones, right? So you try and be efficient and sneak in actions for as cheap as cheaply as you can. Um, but the earlier and higher you go to different actions, the more they're pumped up. It's one of those things where everything works in a circle, you know, like you're considering about publicity, which helps you get the theme of the, the theme of the game is you're putting on a magic show. So, you know, so you're getting rabbits in the hat from the rabbits in the hat store or whatever. I don't know. Uh, it's, it's a big giant circle. I don't think it's magic. I think you're like doing patents for like inventions is what I understood. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm oh, wrong. Oh, no, no, no. There are patents in the game. <laughs> yeah. I thought I thought the patents thought, specifically didn't fit yeah. the theme. I was no, I like, thought, I thought they I thought, were like <laughs> patenting like special two-way mirrors for special tricks or no, something. Like, actually, I had this patented cut the girl yeah. in half trick. No, they're actually inventions. And that's why I think you like charge people like licensing fees or something. I think there's a mechanic Then why is everyone wearing top hats? Anyway. Uh, I don't know. It's for the World Fair. The World Fair is involved or something, I think. I read the, I looked at that game as well. It's, Everything looks cool. Um, uh, Uwe Rosenberg is putting his face on games now that just say Uwe seal of approval like he has nothing to do with the design he's just like if you like, like my yeah, games you'll with, like this with like movies and Quentin Tarantino like Tarantino did yeah. it with movies with like mm -hmm. Grindhouse and stuff <laughs> so this is Uwe Rosenberg doing that some of the patents say pick a player and steal two things of him like it's an asteroid like we're playing terraforming Mars and I just want to discard those cards from the game and play it and then I think it will be fine there's also another little something. You know how, like, in Everdale, how you didn't like how you had to max, match up the bakery and the baker and just hope they come out in the deck? Yeah. It looks like the patents have that, too. Oh, Some yeah. patents want you to have, like, a specific thing. But there was nothing unfixable about any of this. So if I find enough people who are willing to house rule things through playthrough one, I think this is going to be a good game. And that's <laughs> you, Crystal Palace. Um, you don't roll the dice? Oh, you get to place them however you want. It just costs more to you, place a six simultaneously, yeah. so you don't know. You have a little box, and you, like, hiddenly set them behind the box and cover them. And That's then cool. everyone simultaneously reveals and pays for them. Basically, you just pick the power of each worker. Yeah. That's neat. That I like that. There is some screwage there, though, because you have to pay. Yeah. And it's in turn order from what I remember. So someone might take your action that you paid for and you kind of don't get to do the action you paid for. Which sounds awesome. Seems like an awesome <laughs> risk that you know, you're in, taking. In a way. All right. So that was some games that we're looking forward to. Up next is our board game topic. Board game design versus video game design. Okay. So when we talk about board games and board game design, there seems to be a argument not really an argument, a debate, a discussion about what's more important, mechanics or theme, and where is the sweet spot? Because if you have a game that's totally thematic, the mechanics are going to be weird and the gameplay is going to be kind of dumb because reality is boring. Um, <laughs> if you have a game that is mechanically sound, but there's no theme to it, then you're just pushing cubes around a board and that's no fun. So... In board games, we kind of have those two extremes. But in 2000, in the early 2000s, I'm not exactly sure of the year, uh, three video game designers, Robin Hunnicky, Mark LeBlanc, and Robert Zubek, put out a research paper called Mechanics, Dynamics, Aesthetics, which sort of formalized how they look at video game design. And I think I've had a really fun time the past couple weeks looking at board games through this lens. So in their paper, they talk first about how a designer 
of video games, and I'm curious to find out if you guys think this is true about board game designers. Designers tend to look at the mechanics first, the dynamic second, the aesthetics last, whereas a player, the thing that's going to bring you into the game are the aesthetics. The dynamics are going to keep you there, and the mechanics kind of come along for the ride. So we're looking at it. Players are looking at games opposite of designers. Can you define dynamics for me? Sorry, I don't get it. I'm going to define all three. (laughs) Give me a sec. I'm getting there. (laughs) Okay. So the mechanics are the rules. So in a board game, it would be the rules in the, in the rule book. In a video game, it would be the underlying programming. Um, it's the actions the player can take, what a player directly controls. So putting your piece on a square, using like worker placement, trick taking, things like that. Those are like mechanics. We know that. Dynamics in a video game is the runtime behavior. So what actually happens as you start mixing these mechanics together? Um, so they're the mechanics coming together and acting on what the player does. Um, so I think I, as you were talking about Merlin, I had a great example of the dynamic is the mechanics of Merlin from what I heard were roll and move and like changing your dice, flipping your dice over So those are two mechanics that come together and create a dynamic of frustration, basically. You are um, stuck there analyzing every single option you have of all the dice is there now, all the dice is there flipped. If I use this flag to move over here, can I... So that's kind of the dynamic those two mechanics create. Aesthetics are the emotional responses that the player has for playing so i guess the frustration would be the aesthetic of the game um or the theme right yeah the theme if if it resonates with you yeah um so why is the game fun so i like i think of aesthetics before i've read this paper as like how the game looks but that's not really the case it's more like what purpose is the game serving for you why are you having fun with it i see so They have some examples of things that make a game fun. So there's a sensation. So are you you playing it because it looks good, because it feels good? Um, I think a lot of the, uh, what are they called? Crokinole, help me out here. Dexterity games? Thank you. For some reason that word went out of my head. Dexterity games, a lot of it is the sensation of it. Mm -hmm. Is we're we're touching pieces, we're moving pieces. then I'll just go through the rest of them quickly. Fantasy, narrative, challenge, fellowship, discovery, expression, and then the eighth one I've heard called many different things. Uh, in the paper, it's called submission, but basically Ooh. it's to get away from the world. Okay, so escapism. Escapism, yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm just kind of interested in... I've been looking at games through this lens recently rather than through the lens of just mechanics versus theme because I think it's really important for designers to understand how their mechanics come together to create that dynamic. Mm -hmm. So I think that might have been something that got missed in Merlin is so you've got these great, these interesting mechanics, but they all come together to just create something frustrating and demoralizing to play. Right. Um, one example they gave in the paper was Monopoly. So like one mechanic that they have is that the rich or that you buy hotels to put on the spaces that then people have to pay you for. It's kind of a rich get richer scenario. Yeah. That's the dynamic. 
Which is capitalism. Which is capitalism. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, what I kind of wanted to talk about um, was what do you guys think about this framework for looking at board game design? I think it works really well. Um, now, just for board games, I think I do look at the mechanics first, but maybe that's after 150 plays through, and maybe I'm actually looking at more from a design perspective these days. You know, I don't care what the theme is. I care about the mechanics. Whereas in video games, I definitely care what the theme is. I'm not going to play some weird theme game, no matter how fun it is. Yeah, that's a good point for me as well. Like, like, why am I buying a video game? Uh, I don't know about the gameplay first, you know, and I might watch like a preview for it and that might not give me enough information to know the gameplay. However, with board games, I could just like look at the back of the box a lot of times and, and have a decent idea and then I could watch a gameplay gameplay of it and know how the mechanics work and I am buying based on that. But again, like what's going going to attract me to the game first, uh, video game and board games is theme and the look of it like the the box art i can't really say that i am attracted to anything in particular actually i'm kind of the wild card i think in the group i have played board games and video games because of mechanics um i think i've played some pretty dumb video games out there uh I don't know, like Aquaria comes to mind. It's like an RPG game where you play like um underwater woman who is trying to find where she came from because she's forgotten or something. It's like kind of a dumb theme, but uh, the mechanics were really good. I think the game was really well designed, really cool kind of exploration. Actually, when Justine started talking about the exploration and uh, stuff, we're kind of deviating from that, but I uh, there's this board gaming profile that I took, it's like a, a quiz or whatever, a survey. I don't know if you guys have taken it, but it kind of shows you exactly what you were talking about. I don't know, you had a list of like characteristics. There's like, a, why, what do you enjoy in board games basically, or just in games in general? There's a board game version and there's a video game version. Um, I, th you think, I think I took both, but basically for me, actually board games is mostly discovery and exploration. Um, there were other things like social manipulation, control, domination, those kind of things. Um, just like uh, being together, the experience of being together, whatever, whatever that's called. So for me, like actually something that I look for and I like is uh, discovery and exploration in games. But I have played, like I say, board games because of theme as well. Uh, theme has attracted me sometimes, so it's not necessarily... Like, yeah, for me, it's, um, for me also, like, uh, to the model of, um, that Justine mentioned, I think things flow into each other. It's not like you can look at mechanics individually and, like, isolate them and dynamics individually. I think when, I haven't designed a game, but I'm guessing when someone writes a game or makes a board game, they don't really like, this is the mechanic and this is how they interact. They kind of, like, start flowing into each other, you know. I think the interaction might change your mechanics and then you kind of iterate on. Um, and I think um, I've, I've looked into how designers start designing board games uh, and some people actually start with the theme. I think actually Reiner Knizia, we were talking about Reiner Knizia earlier. I think he actually designed board games completely without theme and then 
they slap a theme on it. And he said that, like, that's not something he's, he hides, I think, is like, he completely designs the game based on just pure mechanics, and he doesn't know what the theme is. And then someone, like, comes up with the theme and, like, slaps it, slaps it on top of it. Like, this might work for this game. Yeah, yeah, this, this, this feels like this kind yeah. of theme. And then you just, like, make the theme kind of attached. That's why I think we you end up with weird games like Aristocracy, where the theme is like, what the heck is this uh but i think some other people start with the theme and they like probably go backwards to the mechanics from mm -hmm. the theme uh like what do i want this to feed to to play like uh maybe i'm making stuff up but i think i heard that lacerda does that he starts with a theme and just has it on point and this is exactly how it would be to colonize mars and then he makes gameplay concession after gameplay <laughs> concession and by the end it's totally science fiction has nothing to do with it except for the box art and no one cares. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Lacerda games come really close to a Euro game actually having theme. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's how he does it is theme first, then integrates the game into it. So listening to this conversation, I kind of wonder if maybe theme for board games can be added as like a fourth thing. So it would be mechanics, dynamics, aesthetics, and theme. Mm -hmm. Because to me, what struck me was like I'm the same way. If I see a game that has like a medieval slash renaissance, whatever historical theme, I am like all about it. I will play that game. But if it doesn't fulfill one of my wants in a board game, like it can have the best theme in the world, but if it doesn't fulfill my want for like a narrative, I'm going to play that game once and only once. I was going to say theme is part of aesthetics, isn't it? That's kind of what it is for me is like the aesthetics of a game is the theme. Kind of. Kind um, of what it does for you at the, at like a visual and emotional level. Yeah. So it might go with like sense pleasure as yeah. a, as a, an aesthetic. But I think with board games, maybe theme is like a separate thing. Mm. Like Brandon was saying, if it's got a good theme, he's going to play it. But if it doesn't have good aesthetics or it doesn't have a good dynamics, you're going to play it once and that's it. The thing is, uh, board games are very rarely single player. I've never played a solo game. Video games often are. So I demand more. I need to make my own meaning from them. So they have to give me more to work with. In a multiplayer video game like Halo or something, I don't care what the theme is because it's competitive. I can also make that same kind of idea in my head about board games. I can just ignore the theme. But if I'm just sitting in my room with the lights off, like, you better tell me a story. Because I, I don't care that I just like conquered this computer, you know, it doesn't like feel as good. <laughs> you know, what's funny to me is uh, when I play video games, I want less story and more just action. Like from board games, I get social interaction and I get like brain exercises and I get puzzly type things, right? But with video games, I want kind of the opposite. I want like my brain to like turn off and just like have fun, you know? So like games that video games that I go toward is like Far Cry, you know, where it's just like open world first person shooter. Like you could like, like, uh, make two things, put, gather two things together and make them into different like weapons or carriers or whatever but honestly like that game is kind of like mindless like there's not a lot of like puzzles in it or anything like that there's like really basic ones that are not like really complex but it's mainly like bust in shoot everybody and like it's weird that's what i want from video games whereas that makes the worst board games the board right. games you hate the most are going to fit that category exactly like, merlin you just roll the dice and do something yeah yeah 
I don't know if you have this coming, Justina, the rail stuff, but I think actually there's some parallels with video games versus board games. Like uh, basically, I'd say Far Cry is kind of like a sandbox game, like uh, Western mm -hmm. Legends and maybe Zia and Merchants and Marauders because there's no clear like strategy or whatever. You just do whatever you want and hope you get the most stuff or whatever. It's kind of um, conversely, actually, uh, I was thinking about Europa Universalis that used to be a video game, turn-based video game and like Civilization actually as well, come to think of it. And they made it into board games, which is kind of like a one-to-one -one transition because turn-based games particularly, I think are very easily ported to board games so i don't know if you if you had anything to talk about as far as like ditto basically yeah yeah civilization same thing like board games being kind of ported to video games yeah i actually didn't think about that but that's a great topic um i th i do think it's kind of interesting um like for brandon that his reasons the aesthetics that draw him into video games and board games are different because for me i think it's very much the same i play games for the narrative i play games for the challenge um and kind of like i play games for discovery and expression as well so like the board games that i play tend to be very similar to the video games i play like i'll play um like Planet Zoo is a game I'm really into right now on the computer. Um, Civ, uh, The Sims on occasion. Like, so these are games that are very much about that, the same things that I look for in a board game is I look for telling, telling a story. I look for discovering things about the game kind of expression. I think that's kind of interesting. So some people it's different. Some people it's the same. Yeah. For me, it's very simple. Like I have a lot of interests in a lot of hobbies. Like, you know, I, I love horror movies, like horror movies are my jam, but if I read comic books, they're not going to be horror comic books. They're going to be like superhero comic books. And then, but if I play board games, I'm not really that into superhero board games. I want like Euro board games, even though I'm playing Marvel champions, that's an exception. Game. Um, but, and then with video games, I just want like mindless, like I want to go and shoot people, get out frustrations in, in a non real world setting where I'm not hurting anybody, you know, but yeah. So I think I like, I like to separate my hobbies. So every time I'm doing something within those hobbies, it feels different from the next. So like, that's just something that I've consciously been thinking of the last few years and like making kind of an effort to actually separate all my hobbies out to where they feel different enough to where life doesn't feel repetitive, you know? I think that's a good idea. Um, going on with what Haristo was saying and kind of, we sort of got into it a little bit earlier talking about games based on IPs. I almost wonder, because to me, um, usually if I see a game based on an IP, an intellectual property, I'm going to dismiss it. Mm -hmm. Like uh, there's the breaking bad board game that I've heard is bad, but also like, I didn't need anybody to tell me it was bad. It was, I knew it was going to be bad. Like most games based on existing IP, I know are going to be bad. I wonder if that's part of the reason is it doesn't fulfill the same aesthetic as the original IP. So like when we port a game from like a video game into a board game, how do we make sure, like I play Civ for the story and for the discovery, um, how do we make sure that that same thing comes over as well? I think that's just a big block of marble and you carve it out even more. Like this Sid Meier Civ game is just 
pared down. It just take out 80% of the mechanisms and get to the really just the distilled part of Civ. You have cities and you're trying to conquer the world. I think but, board games just can't handle as many mechanisms. Yeah. And so when you port them over, more than anything, it's about just taking out some of the bulk. And that's yeah. the thing is, so maybe I won't like the Civilization game because I personally play that game for the expansive tech tree and finding different pathways through the tech tree and different ways to play. And if you take that out of Civ, I'm not going to like that game. And you can't go the other way, notably. You can't turn a statue back into a big block of marble. Can you imagine a Lorenzo de Magnifico video game? Absolutely not. There's not enough there. I don't know. Actually, go to board games. Yeah, you have to have imagination. I'm pretty sure you can do something like that. Like I'm walking into the uh, blue tower. No, no, I don't know if you you played uh, the TV. Gosh, something like TV. There's a there was a game where you run a TV station, which is basically a tower game. Uh, There's also Sim Tower. That's not exactly the same thing, but you make a tower with offices in it, and it's real time, and they run and whatever they make money or. You make a tower. It's sim tower. Um, I think with enough imagination, you can port it. It's not going to be the same feeling, probably, because you're not going to be doing math and like planning for actions. But um, I think that's just the format of of board gaming. But I think with enough imagination, I think things are very kind of portable um, in a way. To Matt's point, though, uh, you have to make you have to do the you have to calculate the things yourself when you have a board game mm-hmm. that limits board games in a lot of ways. Uh, that's actually maybe a hope for those app-enabled board games, the weird ones where like Colony or whatever it was called, where it has an app that like calculates complex things because that's the way to make a game more like a video game if you want that kind of, ex- of, kind of an experience where the computer like calculates a bunch of stuff that if you were to do it, it would take like just an unreasonable amount of time. So... I think that's the sacrifice you have to make when going from like digital to board game is like you have to kind of simplify it a lot. And that's just kind of the way it is. And you usually have to add in a dexterity element that just is non-present. Because if a video game has no dexterity, if the joystick doesn't even matter, then you're like reading a choose-your-own-adventure book. It's like you're playing one of those really old RPGs. Or they have those, I think they're called Tall Tale Games. Have you seen those? Tall Tale no. Games? I love those, yeah. They're yeah. like uh, remakes of like King's Quest and Police Quest and stuff, but just better. Yeah, they have a Batman one. They just came out with like a Guardians of the Galaxy. Basically, you're watching like kind of a a movie and then you make decisions. It's like choose your own adventure. Like you just like choose which thing to do and then you watch its outcome. And that's like... Like Until Dawn was one of the first ones, I think. Sam and Max was actually one of the first ones that I really like. They're pretty much straight remakes of Quest games from the 90s with like really cool... 3d they're all 3d um i've actually i haven't played the new ones they're kind of more like quick time events formats like the batman one um the sam and max games were pretty heavy on like the puzzles puzzle element i don't know if they've they've kept doing that they also did the walking dead i think did you mention that just now uh, no Uh, the walking dead uh, they have made a bunch of series of board games on because on the walking dead i actually like franchise hated them like absolutely hated him because of that element that Matt was talking about. The dexterity was not there. I'm not moving my characters. I'm not controlling it. I'm controlling the story, which like isn't that interesting to me, even in a board game, really, because that's how that uh, that one adventure games was for mm-hmm. me, where like we were 
kind of controlling the story but like our movement didn't really matter and for me that's just like not enough for me to just like watch and then just like play god of like what happens in the story like i'd rather just watch a movie and it make that decision for me of where it's going or sit down and write my own story mm-hmm. you know read a book write your own book watch yes. a movie are all better than these many forking t- mediocre stories you just yeah. can't have that good of a writing that can go in eight different directions black mirror can't. came out with that that uh, bandersnatch yeah. was the yeah. best example of this ever none of these things are going to be bandersnatch like but i would rather of like after playing i guess bandersnatch which i guess you're playing <laughs> yeah. um at the end I, it, and then they came out with like three new episodes i was like i would have rather them have a full season than have that thing even exist honestly <laughs> mm-hmm. Like I didn't care after a while. It was like this weird obsessive, uh, obsessive thing where I just wanted to try to get the best outcome ever and and go back and do something different each time. And like that, I went through it once, and I'm never gonna look at all the other ones oh, because of that. We went through probably almost all of it in one sitting, just because that the takes three the of magic us, out of it. Right? Yeah, the three of us were just like, "What's the possibilities?" You uh-huh, know, because exactly. the first time we went through it, it's like we made a bad decision and we got fired and we went home and pouted. And it was like that is it let's go back you know and it has this rewind mechanism in it where you rewind and you start over from the last thing and you make a different decision and for me it was just like oh man it was just like kind of frustrating like it wasn't it didn't have enjoyment for me because i was just like wanting to figure out all the possibilities that is that is there see and with me i'm the same way i wanted to find out all the possibilities but i didn't want to have to sit there and watch like all the decisions play out so i finally just went to youtube and was like searching for a bandersnatch explanation done because i just wasn't interested in sitting there and watching the movie over and over and over again right um i also wonder if that might be the problem with like these newer not legacy games but story-based games like maracaibo i wonder if the issue is is like so if you're adding a story element into your game, you would think that you were wanting to encourage like narrate narrative and discovery based gameplay um, for your, your players. And so that's the aesthetic you're going for. But then like in Maracaibo specifically, like we don't have any control over the narrative. The narrative is the narrative. We don't get to choose. If you choose the wrong answer, you just do a different thing. If you pick the answer that kills the guy you're trying to save, like, oh, well, pull this card anyway and continue the story with no consequences. You know, so with, uh, I was thinking about that and with like Maracaibo, like you, you'll randomly pull out uh, a story element, but I'm sitting there still thinking about the puzzle of the game and what I'm going to do on my turn strategy wise. Whereas like video games will have a cutscene and you're completely removed from the game and you watch this and then you go back in and you have some of these uh, story-driven video games you have no control over it it's a story no matter how you play it but it's just going to be the gameplay that uh that you have control over so i think with video with board games for me if they're story-driven they have to be they have to have an element of simplicity um or else i'm going to be wrapped up in thinking about the strategy I wish you could skip the cutscenes in Maracaibo, so to speak, you know? Some video games say press A to just skip this, yeah. and I, I would just skip it in Maracaibo. Unfortunately, you can't. Justine you- just keeps reading the card. Well, <laughs> you can. You just, like, don't read it, and you just read the objective, right? What do or, you have to do? Or, I mean, yeah, you can. We can just play with the base game, not story, which I'm actually kind of ready to do. I'm 
getting to the point now where I don't care about the story anymore. For Mark Ibo in particular, first, the story just doesn't appeal to me that much. It's like just not written well from what I've seen so far. Um, like, I don't know, it's just like I can't put my finger on it, but like not enough interesting stuff happens. Second, I think that the, the design of non-choices is not good. I think there's better ways to do it where the choices actually are choices. Um, there's actually multiple like theories on like choices in games and um, there's the Mass Effect, whatever that was called, way of like there's a line, right? So it's like a line and you make choices, but then you converge back to that line. There's also like a tree uh, where you don't converge back, but that's re like really difficult to do. And you have to have a huge deck of cards to have like a true, you know, like you make a choice and it changes the whole game from then on. You like, don't go back to like a line, like rails or whatever it's Fallout called. Fallout is that way, but that's because it can use a computer to have a huge, huge tree. Possibilities mm -hmm. of like what can happen. Yeah. That's the craziness there. And I think it just comes down to design. I'm not sure I like the choices that were made in Mark Ibo for just like first the story itself is not that interesting to me. Second, there's choices, but they're not really choices. Like, are you kidding me? Well, at least from the very little that I've seen. No, you're 100% so, right on both of those. Um, so that just comes down to it. But I do enjoy actually story games. Like, unlike Brandon and uh, maybe other people who don't enjoy story games, I really like uh, story games that appeal to me. I've played like Penumbra. It comes to mind. Penumbra is like a game where you wake up in a bunker and like on. PC. Uh, you wake up in a bunker and it's like a very rails kind of story. Uh, you just, it's kind of on rails. Yeah. I mean, you can explore a little bit, but it's not like mazes or anything. It's pretty much on rails. Like go through this puzzle, then go through the next puzzle, then go through the next puzzle and you just keep going forward. I enjoyed that, but the story is well done and it just like appeals to me and um, I enjoyed the puzzle. So I think it, for me, it comes down to just enjoying the way the story is written and the puzzles that it has and it has to have some puzzles. I, I can't really just sit there just for story. I need to enjoy the puzzles as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I get my stories from comic books and movies, so I guess I just don't want them in other facets of my like passions. And see, I try and shove stories into whatever I'm playing. Like mm -hmm. if I'm playing the bloody end, I'm telling a story, at least to myself. Um, yeah. Anyway, so that was mostly what I had to talk about. Um, I did just think it was interesting that extra step of the dynamics. I feel like that's where a lot of games fail is that we have these mechanics that we spend forever. Well, okay, not we, I'm not a game designer. There's these mechanics that designers spend forever on, but maybe they forget to think about how those mechanics interact yeah i mean there's something that's just the magic of a good game and yes you can on paper slap five mechanics that are good mechanics together and have kind of an average or bad game or just they just don't feel fun to play and i think that's just kind of experimenting with different mixes and coming up with new mechanics and actually putting them together and see how they feel to people because i think it's i mean yeah, everything kind of has to work together for to make a good game, I think. Exactly. Sorry for the Star Wars Armada tournament going on in the background, if that's what you're hearing. Demolition is popping with tournaments and all kinds of things. Come on down. If you're in Salt Lake City, Utah, Demolition Games. All right, well, that's our show. So thanks for tuning in. And... Um, Give us a review if you like it, or you can contact us on our website, www.cardsandcubes.com, or email us at cardsandcubespodcast at gmail.com. 
We'd like to thank Lindsay Hobbs for composing the theme and Kirsten Adams for creating our logo. You can see more of her art at Cat Coffee on Instagram. That's K-A-T-C-O-F-F-E-E. Uh, Cards and Cubes is a production of Pod Cauldron. Check out some other great podcasts on the Pod Cauldron Network, including Bub Club, a horror movie podcast, and Rabble Rabble Rabble, a comedic look at current events. You can find these on Spotify and Anchor and coming soon to more platforms. Once again, we'd like to thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. Or you will hear us and we won't see you. 